Weird Times, Creepy Crimes, and Unexplained Phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. I'm head weirdo Mia Lorenzo, and your host for the SoFlo Weird Show, a podcast for people who are just not that normal. It's weird stories for weird people. This offbeat storytelling will leave you amazed or appalled, but either way, you'll learn something about the offbeat, darker side of the Sunshine State. Today's topic is creepy people. South Florida has proclaimed more days and given the keys to the city to more serial killers and drug dealers than any other place in the entire United States. This is Chris Mancini, and no, he's not creepy. He's an attorney, author, and crime history enthusiast. Chris's Crime Tours Museum in Fort Lauderdale displays artifacts, police paraphernalia, and evidence from centuries of true South Florida crime. Here you can sit in a replica of Florida's electric chair, Old Sparky, or spin the big red wheel of misfortune. There's also a guided bus tour around the city, which promises to be a mind-boggling experience. The Ma- La Madrina, yes. the Colombian. So she loaded up a van, put armoring on the side of it, cut portholes in the side, put machine guns inside it, and then drove down to Dayland Mall and opened fire on all these people. She killed three people that day and shot up a bunch of other people who were just standing around. And that was one of those great only in Miami stories. Today, we decided to talk with Chris about crime in South Florida and highlight a few creepy cases. Before we talk about creepy people, I want to lay a little groundwork. I mean, Florida really is a great place to live and work. I mean, we have beautiful beaches. We got wonderful nightlife. We're culturally diverse. But for some reason, Florida has been like a magnet for criminal activity. Why do you think that is? Because we have beautiful beaches and because it's a <laughs> right, great place for people go. to come. <laughs> it appeals to the criminal class just as it appeals to the people that don't break crimes. Florida is a great place to work, but it's also the last stop on the train. And we've always been kind of laissez-faire attitude towards what goes on down here. And when you got just 90 miles between us and, and Havana, where a large quantity of things are la- much more laissez-faire than they are here, you know, it's that crime in the tropics. You know, you can't get away with this stuff in small communities where everybody knows your business, but you can sure disappear in South Florida, which is just a number of separate towns connected by roadways where nobody knows what your business is. The most often quoted thing in the newspaper down here about crime is, oh my God, he was the nicest guy. I never would have thought in a million years that he was doing something wrong, blah, blah, blah. That's what you always see in the paper. Why? Because nobody really knows anybody else down here. In our first creepy crime, art imitates life. And in this early 1960s case, the suspect, Mr. Adler, possesses the characteristics found in Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs and Bill Cosby. In 1962, Mr. Adler, okay, proves that there is nothing new under the sun. (laughs) That all we're seeing is, you know, new versions of what's been going on for the longest time. So Adler was this balding insurance agent who was arrested for doping and then disrobing women, and then he wouldn't have anything sexual with them, he'd just take out a ruler and start measuring them. 
and he would put their measurements in this coded little book of his and he did this to so many women, I don't know the exact count, that when he went to trial, they had to postpone the trial because all these women came out of the woodwork having read about it, saying, he did it to me too, he did it to me too. So this, this me too thing that, I, that yeah. everybody's talking, hashtag me too, like I said, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just it happens in different ways, different times. So Adler, this little balding insurance guy, he's just, you know, your basic uh, um, mashup of uh, Bill Cosby and, and uh, whatever other kind of pervert you can think of. But the crimes, obviously, are doping somebody, unconsensual touching, which is a, we call battery in the law, um, lewd and lascivious type behavior, and whatever else they could think of back in the 60s to throw at this guy. But what makes it interesting is the sheer number of women that he claimed he was doing this to. Hungry for more? This next creepy case is like The Walking Dead. No, South Florida has not been under a zombie apocalypse, but Miami has had its own cannibal. Well, the victim was a guy by the name of Papo, Eugene Papo, and he had actually been one of those lost souls whose family had lost track of him. He had gone to a very good school in Stuyvesant, New York, and he um, was supposedly on track to having a successful life. But somewhere he fell off that path and he ended up uh, disappearing into the woodwork. When the attack happened, they located his family and they said they thought he was dead. He had already died prior to him being attacked by Rudy Eugene. So it's 2012 and Papo kind of lives on the MacArthur Causeway as a homeless guy, comes and goes. And he'd been shot before, he'd been treated for various illnesses, uh, like so many homeless people when you're on the street, you're exposed to the people that are out there who mean you harm and you're an easy victim. And he had the misfortune of being on right directly on the path of that comes from Miami Beach and crosses over when Rudy Eugene, who's only 21 years old, is walking naked from Miami Beach, high on something, the toxicology report never said what, and attacks Popo and knocks him down and starts chewing on his face. And he's, Eugene's naked and Popo's just laying there being consumed by Rudy Eugene when the cops come along the scene and order Eugene to stop what he's doing and Eugene doesn't. He actually looks up from Popo's face and growls at the cops like a dog. Like an animal. Eating his lunch, yeah, and um, they shoot him dead. Now Popo has lost both his eyes in the attack and his face has been chewed off. So he has to undergo, undergo a series of surgeries, extensive surgeries, to reconstruct what they can from him. And now he's left with a Halloween mask for a face. But he's got a face and he's alive. And Rudy Eugene ain't. Yeah, I, I heard that it was like 75 to 80% of his face mm. was literally ripped off. Yeah. That's just crazy. You know, I just think it's a classic story of being exposed and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. If you were sitting under a bridge in upstate New York, no one's going to come and eat your eat face. Eat your face off, right, I know. You know, but yeah. if you're out there and you're exposed, you just don't know what's going to happen to you in South Florida. And it, this wasn't the only case of a cannibal no. incident. No, we had a second case involving a college student who attacked a couple inside their home or actually their garage that they used as like a, a, a lanai or an outdoor um, screened off area and he just went in there and stabbed the husband and started consuming him eating him he was tasered rather than shot by the cops so he survived and uh, went to prison and hit the explanation for his crime was never quite satisfactory either what was he on why did he do that 
I don't know, but I do know one thing. We hold the record for cannibalism in the continental United States. <laughs> so something to be very proud of. Next is a love story so demented, it's not only creepy, it's grotesque. Listen, when you find your one true love, why let a little thing like death get in the way? This is the case of Carl Tanzler and his corpse bride. Well, Carl was a German uh, scientist, quote unquote, a quote, mad scientist, who held a degree in microbiology and who worked at a hospital in the Keys. And he was an inventor and he was a putterer. He was always fixing things. Uh, he had an airplane that he kept in a piece of property that he was constantly in the state of trying to restore to being able to fly. And he was also an obsessive compulsive and he had some screws loosed <laughs> on top of everything yeah. else up there. Whatever ran right, there was some stuff that ran wrong. <laughs> and uh, Carl's um, claim to fame is that a young woman, a beautiful woman by all accounts by the name of Elena Hoyos, young girl, came into the hospital with tuberculosis, turned out to be terminal. But Carl fell in love with her. Now what love was to Carl Tanzler is not like love that anybody else I've ever known you know, or read about. Carl promised her family that he could re, uh, treat her and put her back to health. And in addition to all the normal treatments that they gave her for tuberculosis, which were many in those days, it's a bacteriological disease, he experimented with her to try and see if he could cure her. He did not, and she died. And when she died, um, he had become close to the family because he was constantly over there, and there was a period of time when they took her out of the hospital and took her home to die and all that. And so Carl funded a crypt for her, which in Key West and in the Keys, as you know, those crypts are above ground because the water table is so high, you can't bury people far and in, far into the, the oolite rock. So this was a beautiful crypt, spent a ton of money on it. And one of its most interesting feature was the telephone that Carl installed. <laughs> so he could go every night, which he did, and call her up oh and God, talk to her. Crazy. Yeah, that's creepy. Yeah. Hello? Until I don't know what happened, but Carl figured it was safe and it was time. So he went, broke into the crib and took her body. Brought it home, home and made her his bride in every sense of the word. Uh. She had spurned his advances, as they say. She, all of his offers of wedded marriage before she died. She thought he was probably a little creepy, oh, which yeah. he was, right? She's a yeah. beautiful girl. She's dying, but even then doesn't mean she wants this creepy guy for a husband. And so he got what he wanted, takes her home, puts her in a bedroom, puts props her up in bed, and then uh, puts wax on the parts of her body that are slowly decaying into oh, nothing. Oh, God, this is so gross. And stretches, <laughs> stretches her body out using wire and puts fake eyeballs in for her eyes and apparently restored her anatomically correctly oh, God. so that he could be she could be his bride in every sense of the word and he went on like this for a long time until he finally got caught and then they but it went on for years oh yeah for years yeah part of the story was that he stored her body in that airplane for a while too before he moved her into the house so i don't know was he gonna fly her around yeah. i don't know but anyways <laughs> There's a whole new meaning. And he put oils and perfumes yeah. on her to, to yeah. cover up the scent of decomposition. <laughs> and she looked she looked odd. I mean, people oh, thought bad. it was a doll, right? Oh. They went in there and they thought, well, this, this actually can't be her. It's got to be a doll. The whole thing is just bizarre. You can't really explain it unless you understand that a mind like Carl's 
was so preoccupied with the way in which he structured the world, his inventing, the way he saw things, that, that he lived in the bubble of his own mind. So it didn't matter if she smelled bad. <laughs> oh, God. It didn't matter if she was decomposing right yeah. before him. Oh, that so was his disgusting. bride. Yeah. yeah. That was his reality. That was his, that was that was his, his reality. That was his normal. Exactly. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah, but you know what? It makes you question the subject of normal. Yeah. Because it seems as though normal varies from person to person in this world. What's normal for him ain't normal for us. And the rest of us just try and spend our time litigating and legislating everybody else not to go too far off yeah. into the wrong direction. But what, you know, Carl was a classic. So then they had a big um, funeral for her again, and uh, they put her on display in a, in a nursing home for several months. I think it was at least a month, and 7,000 people came oh to look God. at her. In and that they, grotesque form. In that grotesque form. And then they reburied her. And guess what? After he was convicted and served his probation or paid his fine, Carl sat home every night thinking about her, thinking yeah. about her. So he went and he dug her up again. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, God. Or broke her out. Oh, what a creeper. What a great story. Yeah, creeper. You know, I tell you what, though. It does give all new meaning to having your friends over for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of dinner, this next case takes place at the Ben Siegel Reptile Store in Deerfield Beach, where a cockroach-eating contest goes awry. Ben has this reptile store, and he's running a worm and cockroach-eating competition. Oh, God, And no, although they you. might turn you off, there are no. all kinds of creepy people out there that like that especially because the main prize was a live python. We've now seen the results of giving people free pythons. <laughs> they've taken over the freaking Everglades. Everglades. Yeah, and then we got to hunt them down. And we gotta, we're hunting them down. And so um, this guy, Edward Archbold, who they described as, quote, the life of the party, <laughs> shows up and jams so many roaches into his oh, mouth this is so gross. that the autopsy revealed that the little barbs on the legs of the cockroach got stuck in his throat. And although he could ingest the other parts of the cockroach body, they just piled up like a traffic jam. Oh. And he choked to death with the python around his neck. Right after he won the python, he staggered outside Started choking and fell dead. I would think the python did the choking yeah. if it was wrapped around his neck. But I think the python was smart enough not to eat the guy or uh, eat yeah. the cockroaches. The python had more brains. <laughs> even, the, even the python has knew, standards, knew right? Better. <laughs> yeah, python standards. But anyway, so Mr. Siegel, after this happens, you think the last thing he'd want to do is be in the newspapers or on television. Right. But then he decides one day to get into some type of an argument with his um, one of his employees or a couple of his employees. And, of course, when you get into an argument in a pet store, you know, <laughs> what you have reach, you got? What have you, you got? What do you got for handy? What do you got handy for a weapon? So here's old Ben, and he's looking around, and he goes, hey, here's a bearded dragon. That's the perfect weapon. So he picks up this bearded dragon, and he starts swinging it at people. He got charged with two counts of battery, so I guess he connected. He must have hit yeah. some lady. Oh if the God. if it was a bearded lady, would it have been a bearded yeah. lady, bearded dragon case? But anyway, so he hits these people with the bearded dragon and gets arrested for that. You know, it kind of does make you wonder, like you said, just how off is, is Mr. Siegel? This final creepy crime leads to a trail of body parts thrown out of a car along the Palmetto Expressway. 
In the driver's seat was Fred Ferrara, and the random appendages were that of his roommate, George Washington Hall. According to Fred, right, who was acquitted, he... Which is huge in and of itself that somebody was acquitted of this. I I don't even get that. I mean, that has to be one hell of a defense attorney. Fred had a four-day trial. And a jury found him not guilty. I, I and they accepted how. Fred's story that he went into his apartment and he found five of his roommates' body parts stacked into the shower stall at the house. So somebody had already done a Scarface on these guys. <laughs> oh, Remember that scene with the chainsaw? Yeah. Uh-huh. So Fred, well, he says, you know, five pieces won't fit in the car. <laughs> So he takes out his hacksaw and he chops up the body a little bit more. Oh my God. Now, at this point, if you're a juror, you've got to be asking yourself, why didn't he call the police? Right, of course. No, nope. Fred did what every good South Floridian should do. Okay. He got in the car, <laughs> he loaded up his roommate's body, and he drove on the Palmetto Expressway tossing body parts out. Oh. One by one. They found a leg here, an arm there, the torso here, another leg, another arm. In and of itself, you think he would have been convicted of littering. <laughs> at least. At least. At the very least. And they never found the guy's head. So all these body parts are dumped all over the palmetto. Fred admits doing it. He admits to sawing up the body parts ah. so they would fit into his car. But he swore that two guys who he couldn't identify had come to the the duplex that he shared with his uh, his roommate the night of the crime. And they're the ones that did it. But nobody, I mean, it never, nobody was ever picked up or anything. No. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, I find Fred's story a little difficult to well, believe. Well, yeah, but. But know, then again, but, I'm the one, I always believe O.J. Simpson was guilty. But, you know, <laughs> the jury acquitted him, and there's, you know, there is no such thing as a verdict of innocence. There's just either guilty or not guilty. Uh, yeah. And they couldn't prove that Fred had actually murdered his roommate. A records check on Fred Ferrara shows one arrest, okay, for murder. A review of that case revealed that Friar was charged with stabbing and dismembering a white male that was living with him and disposing of the body. So then a second guy went missing, and no trace was ever found of this guy. That was also a roommate of Fred's. Oh. So I don't ever live with Fred. No, I think <laughs> if Fred puts an ad in uh, Craigslist, I think <laughs> yeah, you got to no, take a no. pass. White male wanted dismemberment possible. Yeah, right. Looking That's forward awful. to... What's that saying? Looking forward to eating you? Be eating you. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. Well, Chris, thank you for these wonderful and creepy stories. We've got lots of photographs as well as uh, headlines, which we will post to the website. Come back. We got more. Oh, definitely. Thank you. From the Sunshine State Super Sleuth to Florida's Master of the Weird, Charlie Carlson, we tell the story of Weird Town USA. This is taken from his book, Weird Florida. In Hillsborough County, on Highway 41, just 10 miles south of Tampa, sits Gibsonton, once known as the strangest town in America. Called Gibtown by its nearly 8,000 residents, it has always been the retirement or wintering home of traveling show folk. Call it Showtown or Freaktown, Gibtown was the final refuge for America's fading carnival culture. During the Depression, carnival and circus folks wintered in this part of Florida, with many of them parking their trailers in the off-season near the Alify River. This was in the days of the big 10-in-1 sideshows that featured live human oddities, like the bearded lady 
or Inferno, the Fire Eater, or the famous Grace McDaniels, the Mule Face Woman. Today, sideshows are rarely found on Carnival Midways, which are now dominated by amusement rides and by game and food joints. In Gibtown, your next door neighbors might have been Priscilla the Monkey Girl, the Lobster Boy, or Dottie the Fat Lady. In other places, these strange people would have met with some degree of social rejection, but in Gibtown, they were treated as average people, bonded by the nomadic lifestyle of the traveling show. In 1949, the famous Al Tomaney, an eight-and-a-half-foot-tall giant with a 22-inch shoe size, retired from the road and settled in Gibsonton. The giant and his two-foot-tall wife, Jeannie, billed as the half-girl, started a trailer park and fishing camp that has become legendary among Tampa Bay fishermen as the Giant's Camp. Al and Jeannie Tomaney were known as the world's strangest couple. For many years, Al served as Gibtown's police and fire chief. He continued operating his fish camp until his death in 1962. In its glory days, Gibtown had the only post office in the country with a special low counter for midgets. The local fruit stand was operated by the famed Hilton Siamese twins. And down at the showman's lounge, the late Melvin Burkhart livened up the bar crowd by hammering six-inch spikes up his nose. Melvin was known on the road as the multi-talented oddity, billed as the human blockhead or the rubber-faced man. In November 1992, Gibtown was hit with negative publicity when the lobster boy was murdered. The victim's real name was Grady Stiles, a member of the fourth generation in his family to be born with deformed hands that looked like claws and with legs that resembled flippers. Two of his four children inherited the strange genetic defect but were never exhibited on the sideshow stage. Grady Stiles was married three times to two women. He drank too much and was frequently accused of abusing his family. Then, in November 1992, following years of misery, his wife, Mary Teresa, asked their son-in-law to help her escape from her husband. The solution was three shots in Stiles' head as he sat watching television in his trailer. The son-in-law was found guilty of murder and was handed a life term in prison. Mary Teresa was sentenced to 12 years. Gibsonton is not the same as it was during the days of the big shows. Most of the famous freaks have died, but a few of their descendants still live there. As you drive through town on Highway 41, it looks like any other place, with a grocery store, gas station, library, and even a tattoo shop. But if you meander through the neighborhoods, the evidence is there. You'll see rusty parts left over from an amusement ride, a concession trailer, or perhaps an exotic animal. Gibtown has special zoning laws that allow such oddities to be kept on lawns. The giant is long gone. The half-girl died in 1999 at the age of 82, and you'll never hear the fat lady sing again. However, there is a strange nostalgia in Gibtown, especially if you like cotton candy, amusement rides, and weird exhibits, because this was the home to those midway nomads who brought their special kind of fun to fairs and festivals across America. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. If you have a weird tale to tell or just want to make a comment, go to SoFloWeird.com. Stay weird, everybody.